Thank you so much. Now, uh, the main thing I want to talk to you about tonight is the culture uh, that we're in and uh, how Daniel speaks to that. A culture is basically the air you breathe. It's what goes on around you and you don't realize it's there. Um, it's comfy to be in. It's uh, a bit like this beanbag over here. You just sort of relax into it. You don't think about it. You're there. And probably in this room, there are loads of different cultures that we're faced with. Um, in any particular high school, there's normally different cultures, aren't there? There's the, um, the, you know, there's a group of cool kids, there's a group of geek kids, there's a group of all the sort of things you see on the classic American movies. And in workplace, you get the same thing. You get um, people splitting into different groups. In life, you get the same thing. People splitting into different things. Different towns have a different culture to them. And, uh, and you sort of, hopefully, it somehow fits somewhere. And a lot of us are straining to, to fit in somewhere, aren't we? Sometimes we go beyond what we feel most comfortable in because we're desperate to fit in. We think it's really comfy over there, and so we just like, you know, slightly pained if we're honest, but we're desperately trying to fit in uh, with everyone else around us. So we go further in what we're saying or doing or trying to be cooler than we are um, because we want to fit in to culture. Um, and it's a, then there's, you know, sort of a more studied approach to life, where you're sort of sitting there and going, I'm going to reflect on what I'm doing, I'm going to try and make sense of it, um, I'm going to get on with, with life, sort of intentionally pushing ahead, maybe disagreeing with some bits of everything that's going around with you, and going, I, I'm going to push on with that. And then over here, at the extreme, is this little prayer stall here, um, and this is what I'm going to call Christ tonight. This is laying down your life and saying, I would give up anything, even if it's really uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever tried kneeling down in public. Um, once upon a time, I got ordained. And um, when I got ordained, I had to kneel at the front of the church on this cold slab. And it was the least spiritual experience of my life because I spent 10 minutes going, ow, my knees hurting. <laughs> um, but there's something about discomfort and that really gets us going, is it? Sometimes it's sort of good for us, isn't it? Discipline. Um, I did a bike ride uh, not so long ago, and I had to practice for the bike ride. And when I did the bike ride, it meant that I could beat my younger brothers. <laughs> that, was, that was a great result. I was particularly thrilled about that. And so sometimes it's worth the discipline because you get a result out of it. And sometimes the Jesus way involves more and more discipline. I came across a guy who had been talking about where does Jesus and culture fit together? Um, because people down through history have thought about this really differently. And you might like to think about going to work or going to school, going to uni, uh, at home. Um, what's the dominant story that's been told to you? Have you had a dominant story like uh, Sarah did, who was going off to university and in her ears were the, be careful. You don't know what it's like out there. It's out to get you. Be, be careful. Keep safe. Maybe you've had a dominant story like that. Or maybe you've grown up in, in a dominant story where it's like, Jesus is really powerful. And actually, things just keep getting better around Jesus. So just get out there among everyone and see what happens around you because he's so powerful. Everything's going to change around you. Maybe you've had a sort of dominant culture which has been like, okay, there's Jesus, 
um, over here. And there is work and study and just normal life and society and the state. Just keep them separate. <laughs> Don't do God and politics at the same time. I wonder what, you're, what you've been swimming in between those two things. Um, someone argued once that Christ was basically against culture. So when you meet Jesus, it critiques everything around you. This is what Leo Tolstoy, the guy who wrote War and Peace, was famously like. Everything about his, his work, sort of critiquing it, saying, um, you've got to be careful, be careful. Uh, how are we going to follow Jesus? And a guy called Tertullian, the same as that, a Mennonites who kept separate from everything going on. Um, back about 150 years ago, there was more that sense that things might get better and better and better. And actually, if you were a Victorian English person or a German, you might have the sense that if we just keep evolving as we are, the whole planet is just going to keep improving. Look at how people aren't dying so young anymore. Uh, look at how healthcare's got better. Look at how medicine's improving. Look at everything. Things can only get better, as uh, Dee Ream uh, famously once uh, sang in, uh, when I was voting my first elections, and Tony Blair came to power. Things can only get better. But of course, a bit like uh, with me and uh, the new Labour uh, first voters, <laughs> things didn't just get better um, from the Victorian era. They didn't just get better under uh, dear Tony Blair either, who's uh, not, not so popular as he was back then. What happened after the Victorian era is the First World War hit. It sort of slapped people around the face going, oh my goodness me, is this really things getting better? People in the trenches shooting each other with machine guns, 80,000 people dying in one day. And then a few decades later, the nuclear bombs are built. Have things really got better? Is culture really uh, being conquered by Christ? Is Christ just getting everything better and having his sort of thousand-year reign on earth? And then... There are other people who said, Christ is above the culture. If you get to know Jesus, he's, he's above the culture. It's not that he's against it or that he agrees with it. He's above it. And there are three different ways you can play that out. One is what uh, Thomas Aquinas was in favor of, the great uh, Catholic pre-modern. He said that Christ fulfills culture. And he had this, this lovely way of seeing the world. I'm quite, I'm quite drawn to it. He said, in the beginning, God made everything... Absolutely wonderful. You were made in the image of God. You are incredible. And sin got in the way, yeah. And it made a mess of you. A bit like the plaque on the teeth. The teeth are there, but the plaques come in as well. It's made a mess of you. But grace is amazing. And Jesus just loves to pull you back and fill you with his grace. Um, so don't be too worried. Jesus will fulfill whatever's going on around you. And then you've got people like Martin Luther or Kierkegaard who said there's an ongoing tension between Christ and the culture. Um, so you've got to live with them both. The separating, separation of the state and the church. You just leave some things to government to do and leave church over here. So when Justin Welby pipes up and says rich people should pay more taxes, he's like invading this worldview head on. Like people who want to see them both separate. And they're really upset and angry that he's got something to say on rich and poor. Um, but the other problem with Martin Luther's idea that you can keep culture and Jesus separate is that a few hundred years later, when the National Socialist Party came to power in Germany, 
they bought into that worldview completely. The church is over here. There's Adolf over there. He's obviously allowed to be doing what he's doing because that's the state thing. We're over here. And they hadn't integrated the critique that maybe Christ wants to do something else. And that's the third way of seeing culture and Jesus. Maybe what Jesus wants to do is take these cultures and give them a good old shaking and transform it, partly through people who are good at being on their knees and who can squash it into a kingdom shape. And when he transforms culture, everything's possible. Daniel was someone who was going to transform culture in four kingdoms in a row. It's quite sensational, and he begins as a teenager. Imagine what it's like to be not sent out from home by you know, a nice church gathering praying for you, and uh, your mum sending you food parcels in the, on, in the post hour and all that sort of thing. Imagine what it's be like instead. Um, ben, can I borrow you? Um, this is a regular feature. Um, uh, and you're sort of forcefully dragged um, off into exile, um, maybe sort of whipped ill-treated a little bit on the way and stuck all the way over there and told you're in boot camp now. It's, hey, got a video camera following us around. It's really cool. It's a bit more like that, except on some ways it wasn't so violent because this power was an amazing power, um, an attractive place to go. I mean, imagine you live out in the stick somewhere and someone says, you can spend a year three years uh, in the middle of everything come and live in Chiswick right where everything's happening um, and you've been stuck out in rural nowhere and you're like oh yes and imagine that it might have been quite an adventure so they get taken from the backwater of, uh, of deepest darkest Israel where things are about to go really badly wrong taken to you think of it as a sort of a cross between the glory of Bath the wonders of Manchester and London all stuck into into one glorious place. They get taken there, and they get treated really well. They get everything lavished on them, because the agenda is that these young teenagers are going to become the future rulers of their own country, but with a Babylonian hat on when they're doing it. It's a wooing session. It's a love fest. (laughs) And we're going to feed you really good stuff, really good wine, all the stuff your mum wouldn't let you have at home. We're going to give you the whole bunch of it and train you in secret and magical arts until you've got a knowledge beyond anyone from the backwaters you came from. It's sort of quite exciting, isn't it? As a prospect, yeah, you've left home. But wow, what's going for you? And the four guys who go, and Ben, you, you can rejoin us if you like. Um, the four guys who, um, who go have the sort of names that might mean they, they get that they're on a mission when they get there. One of them is called God is my judge. One of them is called Yahweh is gracious. That means God, the Lord is gracious. One of them is called who or what God is. And the last one's called God is my helper. Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azrael. And they get their names changed when they get there. I mean, imagine what their mum said to them as they were leaving home. I can, can you imagine? 
I used to have this really annoying thing when I was um, going out for a night out. And uh, my mum would sort of uh, look at me dressed quite badly. I didn't dress particularly well as a teenager, I have to say. Uh, but she'd say, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And it was like the most irritating thing anyone could say. Because somehow, although I didn't want to listen to what she was saying, something in me instinctively was like curtailed in my personal freedom of what I was going to do. Because she'd said to me, don't do anything that I wouldn't do. I'm not sure how long it lasted for, but it, it certainly got right into me, like a sort of constriction. And you can imagine those mums going, remember, your name is God is my judge. <laughs> remember, God is your helper. And they had already learned to pray. Three times a day, they'd knelt down and prayed. And they'd already learned to listen to the guys who were the great religious voices of their day, particularly Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah was like a freak show in their hometown. He was known as the weeping prophet. It was really annoying because things were still going quite well. And he'd get there and he'd be, oh, God's going to destroy everything. And everyone would have like gathered around him and gone, you moron. It's good. Just enjoy life a bit. Just chill out, Jeremiah. And then suddenly, God was allowing everything to get destroyed. Because he had a plan for Israel, which included punishing them. To bring them back to himself in the long term. And Jeremiah was like, everything's going to get destroyed, but in 70 years' time, it's all going to be all right again. And Daniel had heard that as a 13, 14-year-old. And we'll find that later on, that he prays in his 80s, and he said, Jeremiah said it was only going to last 70 years, God, you've got to do something. And that's when God sends that angel to answer his prayer. So already he'd learned to pray three times a day. Already he'd learnt the scripture. Already he'd learnt how to listen to the Zoe Phillipses of his day. He was tuned in to what God was saying. And suddenly he turns up in his place. What's he going to do? How's he going to cope with culture? Because this is a dominant culture over here that he's about to land in. If you disagree with this culture, things can happen to you, like big fires that you get chucked into, or lion's dens that you get chucked into. What's he going to do? We turned up and he turns vegetarian. It's not a cheap student diet because he can't afford anything else on his loan. It is some sort of decision that he makes that says, I'm going to take back a bit of control and I'm going to serve God. Now, it's a bit freaky what he does, to be honest, because you might think, first off, he's just obeying the Old Testament law. But he goes beyond the Old Testament law. It may be that he, he says, I don't want a food that's been sacrificed to idols because that would break the Old Testament law. Or I don't want pork because that would break the Old Testament law. Or I don't want shellfish, although I don't think they were too big in uh, contemporary Chaldean era right away from the sea. Could be that he's just saying, I don't want anything that's going to break the law. But he actually goes beyond that. He says, I'm not going to have your wine either. Amazing, isn't it? So many of the times where I've really screwed up have been after I've had <laughs> a fair bit of wine. And he said, I'm not going to have any of the wine. And please, I don't want to have any of the food. Uh, just give me vegetables and see how it works out. And he has just vegetables for several weeks. He and his uh, three mates, his sort of small group mates, uh, ten, 10 days in verse 12. They test them on it. 
and uh, they get better and stronger than all the people around them. And what is more, this is really, really exciting if, like me, you're studying at the moment, um, God gives them skill in literature and wisdom, understanding all visions and dreams, and at the end of the time, it says they were 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. So this is, they're turning up as undergraduates, age 14 instead of 18, and they're all really better than the Dr. Lynch's of this world. (laughs) It's incredible. All that study that Dr. Lynch and others have put in, just forget that stuff. They've already got it as a divine download. I don't know who the most annoying person in your workplace or school um, is. Uh, It could be the person who always whistles through their teeth or the particularly smelly person. Um, But sometimes it's the person who just gets it really easily, isn't it? You're slogging away at something and there's someone who just seems to go like, yeah, no problem. I had a friend like that called Joel uh, at university. Fortunately, we weren't in the same subjects. He was doing law. He was a Christian guy, and he got the second highest first in the university when he was there. And he said to me, as he was beginning his revision five weeks before the final exams, <laughs> said to me, I've learned the secret of revising. I revise in the Holy Spirit. And he would basically pray, revise, get God sort of charging him up, and then he'd work. And he was like, I have incredible recall, and I'm inviting God in. Now, I have to say, if you could bottle that up, it would probably mean we'd have great revivals in most of our Christian unions at university. And it's not always that simple. But it's certainly what happens for Daniel. He goes for God, and God says to him, I'm going to give you all this stuff as well, just like he had for King Solomon a few hundred years before. Solomon could have asked for anything when he started out his new life. And he asked for wisdom, and God says, I'll give you wisdom, and I'll give you everything else you need as well. So Daniel and his friends go veggie and get loads of wisdom. So they're holding out against culture, are they? They're standing strong. They're sort of on their knees, prepared to put themselves on the blocks, praying. Well, not so fast. Because two things also happen to them. One is a possible, although it's probably probable, give or take. Um, You can argue over it later. Uh, And the other is definite. The possible is, did you notice who was put in charge of looking after them? The chief eunuch. Chief eunuch. Um, if you're not sure what a eunuch is, um, ask a youth leader afterwards. <laughs> it basically means you've been castrated uh, so that you're not a threat to the regime. And you won't have children and follow on. Um, there's a good chance that people in Daniel's position were castrated and made eunuchs so that they could serve in a kingdom. That's a pretty tough calling, isn't it? But you see through Daniel's life, there's no mention of him with his family and kids and all the rest of it. A different path. Different path, an unexpected path. But the other thing that gets taken away from them is their identity. It's their name. Do you remember what they were called? God is my judge, Yahweh is gracious, who or what God is, and God is my helper. Suddenly their names are changed to a wife of Baal, protect the king. Command of Aku, the moon god. Who is like Aku, the moon god? And servant of Nebo, the great shining light in the sky. And we don't have any record of Daniel and his friends protesting against these things. They sort of take it on the chin. Your name's been changed. 
to a pagan god's name. Water off a duck's back. (laughs) Call me what you like. Say what you like about me. But in my heart, I am his. And he is mine. I wonder what you've been called in your life so far. I wonder what you might be scared of being called in your life place, in your workplace, in your family, at your college, at your university, at your school. He didn't care. Call me what you like. In the core of my being, I am still the one who knows that God is my judge. I'm still the one who knows that my God is gracious. I'm still the one who knows what God is. I'm still the one who has God as my helper. Say what you like about me. Do what you want to me. I won't get into a Joseph song. (laughs) I'm still that boy that my mother raised. Roger Kipling, who wrote that poem, If, said, give me the child till they're seven. I'll give you the man. Maybe someone's invested in you. Maybe you're not sure who you're going to be in the future. I tell you, if you've been given to God, if someone's trusted you to God, and if you've responded as well and trusted yourself back to God, that is a powerful coming together. You're in good and safe hands, no matter what the course of life may be. So these guys, they come along, they carry on, and things are going to work out for them in all sorts of different ways. We'll hear more about that next week. As for you, as for me, what are we going to do with Christ and culture? Where do you want to land on that thing? Do you just want to be one of those um, protectionists who says, I'm just going to keep myself from being tainted in any way. I will surround myself with people who believe the same things as me, who are like me, and that way I'll keep safe. Build on what I've got already and stay utterly safe. Do you want to be one of those people who just sort of goes, ah, it doesn't really matter. God's good, God's strong. And uh, potentially (laughs) falls over into an unseen hurdle, naively expecting that what you've got will just swallow everything up around you. Not aware of the bear pits and traps that are on most corners of most uh, lives. Or are you going to be one of those people who clocks the culture, the air we breathe, is sometimes for God, sometimes it's against God. And if you land in there, as I suggest, is probably a sensible place to land. Which way do you want to land in there? Culture's just going to be fulfilled ultimately the Aquinas way. It's not a bad way. You see, sin comes along, but grace is going to be big. You're already made in the image of God. Take a risk or two. It's not a bad way to go. Are you going to be aware that there are some parts of your life that you need to sort of parcel off a bit and go, that's not, you know, the place where I do evangelism. Actually, when I'm in uh, work and I start preaching at people around me, that's just annoying. That's not really helping anything. (laughs) And that, that might be something to weigh up. But I think if it was me giving advice and I got the microphone... 
I, I would probably suggest, land with Augustine and John Calvin on this. Jesus came into the world and gave us one really important prayer. He said, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's a radical prayer for transformation. And the way he sort of sends us into the world is to be what he calls salt and light, which is a bit like being a secret agent. You don't have to sort of lead her with a sort of, sort of sense of, hey, we're on a mission and we're different to you and against you. But you get out among people that you're not scared of. You sit in the culture quite happily, even if they change your name. You join in with them, to a point, to a degree. And among them, you're different. Among them, you are the light of the world. Among them, you're salt. People notice that things change around you. They can see something different in you. And it's radically attractive and changes everything. That's, um, that's what I want for us as a church. Our buildings, with our congregations, with our small groups, with the Alpha Course, with everything people does Monday through Saturday. I'd love us to be people who are out there among other people. And it makes a difference. What about you? What are you called to? Occasionally, in honesty, we know we've capitulated so much to this <laughs> that we're not sure we can really get back up again. That's when it's worth remembering our friend Aquinas over there. <laughs> Do you remember? Even when there's sin, there's grace. There's always a way back. There's always a way back. But there's also a radical manifesto. Come and shake the world up. Come and change lives. Join in the Jesus mission and see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.